presented by Pharma. How's it going? I'm Playbook Editor Mike DeBonis. Happy Monday. Something a little different today. I'm joined by Josh Gerstein, Senior Legal Affairs Reporter here at Politico, for today's Daily Briefing. Today is the first Monday of October, and for Josh and a lot of other Supreme Court watchers, it's an important day. It's the first day of the Supreme Court's new term. Joining the court is Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was formally sworn in on Friday. While she's new to the court, her vote is not expected to drastically change the court's ideological balance, which remains 6-3 in favor of conservatives. There's plenty of important cases on the docket, including big cases involving affirmative action and religious liberty, but some of the most important cases may have to do with voting rights. And one particular of note to Playbook listeners is one called Moore versus Harper. Josh, could you walk us through this case? Why is this particularly important? Uh, hi, Mike. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, so this what's interesting about this Moore versus uh, Harper case, it comes out of North Carolina, but it's really not that material um, what state it's out of. Uh, basically, conservatives are using it to um, dust off arguments that have been uh, going around in conservative circles for several decades now uh, that basically contend that state legislatures have almost complete power over the structuring of congressional uh, elections and that basically state courts and perhaps even state governors don't have the right to interfere uh, in that. You know, it's an argument that comes out of the Constitution uh, and language saying that state legislatures should uh, set the uh, policies for uh, federal congressional uh, elections. And so uh, conservatives are basically arguing that when the Constitution uses that, those words, it literally means whatever the legislature in a particular state uh, says goes, uh, and that any other entity of the state, like their state Supreme Court or a state lower court, or as I was saying, perhaps even the state's governor, um, wouldn't have just some oversight role, would have no role whatsoever in those decisions. And, you know, if it, if it came to pass, uh, it would be a pretty major retrenchment of one mechanism that Democrats and liberals and civil rights activists are hoping to rely on uh, as we see the Supreme Court uh, take an increasingly narrow view uh, of what constitutes a violation of federal voting rights laws. Right. And and just to set the stakes here, what happened in North Carolina uh, involves congressional redistricting. And basically what happened was that the Republican state legislature drew a map, a very strong Republican gerrymander, um, and the state Supreme Court struck it down and uh, basically forced the drawing of a, a more balanced map. Um, and, and, and the claim in this case is basically that the, the state Supreme Court had no right to do that. Is that is that about the size of it? Yeah, and that no state supreme court would. And and as as I was saying, Mike, it it's really something that you know as as more conservative federal courts have started to pull back on broader interpretations of the Voting Rights Act and of federal constitutional guarantees. We've seen civil rights groups, Democrats, uh, turn more and more to state courts uh, in states where those courts are somewhat friendly to them. Uh, they tend to be maybe not swing states, but uh, perhaps not the the reddest of red states, uh, and to try to seek relief from those courts. And if this particular Supreme Court case is successful in the the most uh, muscular view of what's called the independent state legislator legislature doctrine, uh, that path that has been used uh, in recent years would essentially be closed. Now we should say it doesn't mean that there would be 
no judicial oversight whatsoever of elections, it would still be possible to file a federal suit in federal court and bring a federal challenge to what the state legislatures did. Uh, but one of the routes that the that you know advocates for voting rights have uh, tended to rely on in recent years would be closed. And you know the the stakes potentially go well beyond redistricting. Uh, is that right? I mean. This independent state legislature's theory, you know, came up in the context of the 2020 election repeatedly, where uh, Republicans, conservatives tended to argue that state Supreme Courts, uh, election agencies, governors, various people who had have roles in, in state governments in administering elections didn't have authority to say change absentee voting rules in the in the context of the pandemic. So is it possible that we see a really sweeping uh, opinion here that would sort of validate that theory and perhaps, you know, keep governors or elections agencies, elections boards from doing what happened in 2020 to uh, address the pandemic, doing that in the future? Yeah. And, and sort of at the at the margins of the most muscular version of this argument, it does become a little bit confusing how elections would actually be administered, particularly in some form of an emergency like the coronavirus pandemic. Right. Because, um, you know, pretty much in every state, legislatures do not set every single particular um, parameter of an election. Right. I mean, they don't say we're going to use this church instead of uh, this particular community center uh, for this precinct's voting uh, place. Now, precinct voting places are something that is covered by civil rights law uh, when they try to put them in a certain neighborhood or exclude them from others. But legislatures haven't traditionally administered at that level. So one of the questions here is even if the Supreme Court accepts this uh, doctrine in some general term, um, you know, where does one draw that line? Can legislatures delegate their authority completely. Uh, That's one of the issues in the North Carolina case, or as you're suggesting, Mike, you know, like we saw in the 2020 election, uh, various state Supreme Courts, like in Pennsylvania, came in and said, look, we're going to allow this sort of accommodation due to the pandemic and not allow another type of accommodation. And that role for those courts would essentially uh, be wiped out and it would give legislatures, which tend to be overall, I think, more conservative than the general populace, uh, you know, an outsized role in managing elections, uh, even for federal offices. Right. And Josh, you mentioned that even if, you know, uh, the uh, the justices decide to sort of foreclose the role of state courts in interpreting uh, election law, um, you know, there's still federal causes of action that would be available. But there's another case that's uh, coming up, a case called Merrill versus Milligan, uh, that actually may narrow the federal path. It has it, it's yet another case dealing with the uh, application of the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, tell me what's at stake in that case. Well, that's a case out of Alabama, and that's actually one of the first cases that the Supreme Court is going to hear uh, on Tuesday. And uh, it, it is basically looking uh, at redistricting in Alabama uh, efforts there to establish a specific number of um, what they traditionally called majority-minority districts. Uh, And this is an area that's been increasingly controversial in conservative circles among people who feel that the Voting Rights Act has been interpreted in too many cases to sort of strictly require uh, that voters have an opportunity uh, to draw a district, uh, essentially have legislatures dictate 
uh, one way or another what the race of their uh, congressional delegation is going to be. In literal terms, it's not supposed to work that way, but in practical terms, it often uh, it often does. And so this is really a chance for the court to dig into this. And this is a court that has shown in recent Voting Rights Act decisions that it is looking towards um, much less robust interpretations of the Voting Rights Act. And so this will be a chance for them to cut it back uh, further. So it could be potentially a double whammy uh, this term uh, for voting rights at the Supreme Court in these series of cases that they're taking up. Right. And as you mentioned, you know, the court under John Roberts, you know, his, his reputation, as you said, as somebody who's been sort of uh, hostile to, to voting rights and the Voting Rights Act, you know, you know, this goes back to uh, the 2013 decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which uh, basically invalidates the, the, a whole section of the Voting Rights Act requiring preclearance for state voting laws. And then last year, there's another decision that sort of limited the after the fact federal review of state voting laws. So is there any reason to think that the the justices here aren't going to take yet another step to uh, you know sort of weaken the Voting Rights Act? Uh, I mean, I, I think that it's likely headed in that direction. We have a 6-3 conservative uh, majority. There have been a couple occasions um, in some sort of uh, interim emergency matters where we've seen John Roberts part company with his conservative colleagues on some issues related to voting rights. But in the main, he's remained sort of a dyed-in-the-wool um, critic of uh, you know broader interpretation of voting rights laws. So uh, I think the reality of this court is with three Trump appointees and a total of six Republican appointees, um, this is an area where it's going to be increasingly difficult uh, for voting rights advocates to uh, score any wins or even maintain the current uh, state of affairs. So so I don't think there is a great reason uh, to think that uh, the court will shy away. It's more a question, I think, of how much retrenchment we're going to see rather than whether we see retrenchment in these rights. Uh, so, Josh, I wanted to turn away from the actual cases for a second. Yeah, you wrote uh, Sunday about the upcoming term and you focused, you know, this piece was less about the jurisprudence and more about the justices and the atmosphere that's hanging over the court right now. Describe that in a couple sentences. What are what, what are the justice justices feeling and seeing right now in the wake of this incredibly consequential and controversial term uh, that concluded earlier this year? Well, um, the dynamic, Mike, I think it's fair to say is very tense. Um, there are a lot of things going on at the court that are not terribly um, normal. Uh, there were rather extreme uh, security concerns going growing out of the uh, abortion case that was decided and the court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade at the end of June. Uh, we had uh, an assassination attempt uh, against Justice Kavanaugh. We had uh, regular protests at a number of the homes of the conservative justices beginning in May after Politico uh, reported on the draft opinion uh, to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. And what's really interesting is beyond those sorts of tensions and, and a, what we believe is probably a still ongoing investigation into uh, the leak of that opinion, um, there are signs of sort of tensions behind the scenes at the court sort of spilling out in front of the curtain between some of the justices. Uh, you know, I think the liberal justices are growing increasingly frustrated at 
uh, what looks like the likelihood that they're going to be in the minority on major cases uh, for the next couple of decades, perhaps the next generation. And in particular, we've seen Justice Elena Kagan coming out and basically making a series of speeches and public interviews, public remarks, where she said that uh, she believes that um, some of the court's recent decisions are essentially unprincipled and are basically, um, you know, just an excuse for the justices pursuing their personal moral and uh, political policy uh, priorities. And this has led to a sort of public rebuttal, both from Chief Justice John Roberts uh, and from Justice Sam Alito, who authored the opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. And, And the exchanges, you know, I would say they've been polite and they generally haven't mentioned each other's names. But there's no question who is speaking and there's no question who they're talking about. And this is just not uh, the kind of public tug of war we commonly see between Supreme Court justices as we go into a new term. Right. But by the standards of Supreme Court interpersonal relations, this is this is kind of the equivalent of a throwdown shouting match in in other contact other contexts. Well, Josh, thanks for your uh, expertise on the Supreme Court. But, you know, the court is not the only thing that you follow. Um, I did want to turn briefly to two other big stories you've been following together with Politico's Kyle Cheney. Um, you, you, you guys are both covering the the trial that uh, is now underway in uh, D.C. federal court involving the Oath Keepers and its founder, Stuart Rhodes. Uh, where are we in that case and, and what are we going to see this week? So they've completed a jury selection, Mike, last week, and we're expecting them to have opening arguments uh, this week and then the trial to really get underway in earnest. It's not just Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, who's a pretty interesting uh, character. I guess some people would find him disturbing, but he's certainly curious to have been a graduate of Yale Law School, uh, have gotten disbarred and found himself at the head of this militia group. Uh, that allegedly was involved in planning to obstruct the certification of uh, Joe Biden's win in the 2020 election. Uh, It's an interesting case among the many uh, January 6th cases that have gone to trial over the last several months, because this is the first one where the government actually rolled out its big guns, if you will, and and is charging the defendants with seditious conspiracy. Uh, And, you know, one can debate whether that's a more serious charge than some of the other charges like obstructing Congress, but it certainly grabs people's attention and it's not a charge that the government um, often brings. And so it'll be a real test for prosecutors here to see whether they can prove that what happened on January 6th was not some sort of spontaneous outpouring of anger following a heated speech from you know President Trump, but instead some kind of a deliberate plot to really interfere with the operation uh, of Congress, something that was planned um, in advance. And that's the case they're going to try to make. And it'll be interesting to see if they can, because the Oath Keepers lawyers have signaled that they're going to argue that they basically came to town um, sort of in all this gear, defensive gear and stationed weapons in Virginia, because they thought Trump was going to invoke something called the Insurrection Act, uh, and then that they would be legally permitted to sort of defend the government uh, through their actions. Now, he didn't, Trump didn't actually do that, but that seems to be the core of the defense that the Oath Keepers are planning to use here at what's expected to be, you know, a five, six, seven week long trial. The other big story that you've been following, Josh, uh, over the past two months now is the Justice Department search of Mar-a-Lago. 
bring us up to speed on that. Uh, we know that uh, th certain things are now in the hands of this special master, uh, this uh, uh, judge that has been appointed to sort of sort through some of these documents. Uh, but there's some there's been some sort of back and forth here. And I wonder if you can just very briefly tell us where things stand. Sure. So, you know, one thing that's going on is some weird kind of sniping between the special master you mentioned, Mike. Uh, that's a judge named Ray Deary, who's been on the bench up in Brooklyn for four or five decades now. He's a Reagan appointee. And Eileen Cannon, who's the judge down in Florida, uh, who ended up being assigned this suit Trump filed to try to basically block review of the documents that the FBI seized from his home back on August 8th from his Mar-a-Lago uh, estate. Uh, and those two have been kind of going back and forth in a, a judgy kind of way, uh, sniping at some various uh, procedural aspects of how this review is going to work. Uh, but it, it seems like it's going to start in earnest in the next few weeks. But the most interesting development in the last few days was that the Justice Department is asking an appeals court to speed up its consideration of whether this special master review should be taking place at all. Uh, the Justice Department did file an appeal after Judge Cannon uh, agreed to Trump's request for, for a review of all the documents that were seized. Uh, they managed to get the appeals court already to carve out about 100 documents that bear classification markings like top secret on them that were found down there. But now the Justice Department is saying, look, this whole review really is unnecessary given the types of documents that are at issue and the types of claims that Trump is making of executive privilege that the Justice Department says just has no applicability in this context. And so uh, we'll probably hear in the next couple of days from that Atlanta-based appeals court about whether they're willing to take this up on an accelerated basis and perhaps bring the curtain down on this particular chapter uh, of the, you know, Trump post-presidency. And, and Josh, you know, you mentioned that the 11th Circuit sort of already sort of, you know, slapped down Judge Cannon's ruling on these hundred or so classified documents. Is that being interpreted as, is there being a likelihood that they're going to end this entire special master proceeding? Or is it too early to tell on that? I mean, it's hard to say, Mike, because we don't know that the issue that the Justice Department is raising now, the timing of this appeal would go to the exact same uh, judges. I think there are about 11 active judges on the 11th Circuit. And uh, I believe a majority of them are Trump uh, appointees. So I think it'd be hard to say that just because they made that earlier decision about the uh, documents with classification markings, that they'd be willing to accelerate the whole process. But, you know, to accelerate it is not really to commit yourself one way or the other uh, to the outcome. So I wouldn't be surprised if they agreed uh, if they agreed to take it up. One of the key issues here might be whether uh, when that issue was resolved about the uh, 100 documents with classification markings, um, does that set a precedent here that essentially spells doom for the rest of this special master review? And that's something that the Justice Department seems to be arguing now and, and will probably put forward as one of their main contentions to the appeals court down there if they can get them to take it up. If they can't get them to take it up on an accelerated basis, maybe this review will be over by the time they actually dig into it. Well, Josh, it sounds like it's going to be another very busy week and a long string of very busy weeks for you. So thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Mike, happy to do it. Did you know the 340B program may be driving up costs for some patients? 
A new analysis finds average cost per prescription for a patient is more than 150% greater at 340B hospitals than at non-340B hospitals. That's a problem. It's time to fix the 340B program. Learn more at pharma.org slash 340B.